You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and my guest in this episode is Nathan Baird. Nathan is an expert in design thinking and the author of a book called Innovator's Playbook, How to Create Great Products, Services and Experiences. Nathan has identified some common, avoidable traps organizations fall into when it comes to turning great ideas into viable products and services. And wouldn't you know it, he's worked out a better way. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nathan Baird. Nathan Baird, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you, David. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you back, Nathan. I was saying on a recent podcast, I have an honesty policy with my listeners, and you are one of the unfortunate guests that I have that fell victim to a terrible data fail at my end, and we lost your original interview. So here you are again, like a good sport, doing it all over again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, look, no problem. It's it's an opportunity to make it even better, isn't it? Exactly. Now, Nathan, you are all about innovation. And I remember I started our our first conversation. I threw you a curly one, so it won't be a surprise this time. And I'm really keen to hear your pitch about how your message is different. Because for those of us who just kind of putt around the corporate world doing our thing, not particularly thinking of ourselves as innovators, but trying to do a good job, it can come across that we get lectured to a little bit about the innovation thing. And this might be my own insecurities being projected here because I don't feel particularly innovative. And I feel like there's a lot of pressure to do it. And I don't even really understand what it is. When you hear a lay person like me talk that way, can you relate to that a little bit? Does your industry, your specialty have a tendency to do a little bit of the preaching? Well, I don't, of course, but um, yeah, I'm sure there's, a, <laughs> I'm sure there is a bit of that out there. No, but look, I think I can, I can relate to that. You know, you've been asked to innovate in your role, or you know, it's innovate or we're toast, or innovate or you die, or you die. And um, we often think of innovations as being these, you know, great fully formed ideas that someone's come up with on their own in a garage. And I guess that's not really the reality. You know, innovation can be can be many types it can be it can be small it can be incremental and it can be you know breakthrough and disruptive but it also requires a team and it doesn't happen overnight either you know what i reckon you might have touched on on that myth that for people like me is a barrier it's that thing that makes us feel like we're not worthy to step into the innovation space and that is that we have this concept in our head that innovation has to be these massive grand ideas like Airbnb and Uber. That was innovative. Now, I'm never going to come up with Airbnb or Uber, I don't think. So perhaps part of the problem lies in this understanding that we all mistakenly get, or many of us mistakenly get, that innovations are the huge big game changers because they're the ones that we hear about. But from what I hear you saying, innovations can be small and subtle. They can be right in front of us and things that we work on a small scale. Do you think that's partly where some of the, the tension lies? Yeah, I think you're definitely right there. It's, it's almost unreachable, isn't it? We put it way out there and, you know, who's going to come up with the next Uber or Airbnb? And, you know, that sort of once in a generation ideas. 
So, um, yeah, not all of us are going to have a breakthrough that big, but we may have some small breakthroughs or working with a team, we might have several small breakthroughs that could add up to something that's still pretty, pretty good. So to help me get put this in perspective, when you think innovation, someone as educated on the subject as you, what do you think about? What kind of things do you literally picture in your mind? Well, if you break it down, it's innovations about you know, creativity and having ideas and then making those ideas happen, you know, turning them into action. So if we think of, you know, us as individuals and organizations, you know, without any creativity, there's no ideas. And with no ideas, you know, the organizations and the people within it will stagnate and, you know, neither will reach any fulfillment. So that's why I think it is important is because, you know, we lead richer lives when we're being creative and innovative. But to your point, it doesn't have to be, you know, the uber innovation. It could be, you know, redesigning a trampoline to be spring free so you don't get caught in those in those horrible springs. You know, redesigning an umbrella that when it blows inside out in the wind, it still works. It doesn't break. Those clever kind of things. You know, there are some innovations that like the spring free trampoline or even the trampoline with a with a net around it. I mean, it's hard to believe we went so many generations. I mean, my generation was a a spring trampoline with no net, just the hard poles around the outside, and you were kind of risking your neck if you did anything more than than jump. And all of a sudden, the kids have got these much safer trampolines. You look back on that and think, in hindsight, how did we not have that idea sooner? You know, the other one that really interests me is the wheels on the bottom of a suitcase. You know, we didn't they were nowhere. And then all of a sudden they were everywhere. You know, wheels on wheels aren't new, but whacking them on the bottom of a suitcase, it was just this idea that obviously one person had and everyone went, yeah, we should have been doing that all along. There must be a heap of those in your industry. Oh, definitely. I mean, I love that one. It's like, you know, you combined the the trolley and the and the suitcase together, haven't you? And gone like, hey, presto. And why did no one ever think of that? And it's, you know, look, it is a mindset. You do have to, um, you know, learn a new mindset or at least uncover or rediscover that mindset that you might have had maybe as a child and start using that again and going, well, you know, what does annoy me about this? What are the pain points or what are my needs here? And then come up with new solutions. And, you know, you get your leg or arm pinched in a trampoline spring a few times, yeah. you know, and why didn't someone look at solving that sooner? I'm not sure. Yes, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. All right, now let's talk about innovation in the workplace in, in, the, in the, the professional setting, I guess, most of our listeners will be interested in, and that's where you do most of your work. Why should all leaders be thinking about innovation? Why can't some people just putt along doing things really well, executing really well on what they've got in front of them and leave innovation up to a special department within the organization somewhere who will come up with all the great ideas? Why is everyone's responsibility to think about this? I guess it's a lot like, you know, everyone's responsibility is also the customer. So, you know, we've all got a responsibility to not only come up with new products and services and experiences for our customers, but, you know, better ways of working. So we're always looking to keep the organization evolving and, and looking for new growth opportunities as well. So, um, yeah, whilst it's nice having an innovation team, we're going to come up with some new stuff. There's no reason we can't all be innovating how we do our jobs. So why do we get so much of it wrong? I mean, the stats are amazing about why so many innovations or new products fail. What is it that we're doing wrong as part of the, the generally understood process of coming up with innovative ideas? 
the biggest thing is we love jumping to the solution. Mm. So we love inventing cool shit, but unfortunately not everybody wants that cool shit. And so if you dig into it deeper, we, we, we come up with stuff that the market doesn't want. There's no, there's no customers for it. So if you look at the, um, don't know if you own a Segway, but, um, you know, that was, that was going to, um, change how cities were designed. They're going to be redesigned around the Segway. It's going to be the best thing since sliced bread. And whilst there has been a number of innovations that have now come out of that technology, you know, it was a bit of a failure really. And can you see that in hindsight, when you look back on that, is it definitely going down a dead end road, the idea of a Segway or was there just something they could have tweaked in the execution that might have made it one of the things that, that everyone picks up? Well, the inventor of the Segway, from what I understand, you know, very, very clever person, came up with, you know, some cool shit, but never actually really understood what's the customer need here I'm solving for or the pain point that I'm improving. Whereas if you compare that with Dyson and his, you know, original vacuum cleaner, that was solving for a couple of, you know, pain points. So, you know, the missing the dirty, messy, dusty bag, and also the vacuum cleaner losing suction as it got full. So he started with a couple of customer needs or pain points and then ran experiments to make it, you know, desirable, feasible and viable. Whereas, you know, the inventor of the Segway started with feasibility. What's something I can make? And, oh, I can sell lots of these so it's viable. But actually didn't find out about the desirability until they launched it and it was too late by then. Something I find really exciting. So, of course, everybody will want it. So that, that is, I imagine, a, a real trap for young players when it comes to innovating stuff. They, they get hooked on something that interests them personally, and then when they go to commercialize it, the interest just isn't there. Hey, I'm really interested in things like VR goggles, Google Glass, those kind of things. I wonder, to me, they're like what the Segway guy described. I feel like VR goggles are the type of thing that, that at some point everyone will be wanting to get into them. But it's like we're, we're stuck in this loop at the moment where the software or the games or whatever you want to do on there isn't cool enough yet, so people aren't buying them en masse. And then, of course, engineers and designers aren't developing software and games and all of the other stuff that might come with it because there isn't money in the market yet. So can that cycle be broken? Will something like VR goggles ever work or will they go the way of the Segway? A great idea executed technically pretty well, but people just weren't interested. Yeah, look, and it it just keeps coming back to, uh, you know, is there a customer need for it or, you know, will there be in time a customer need for that? Or do we need to, you know, tweak or pivot, you know, the product or the experience to meet a need? So, you know, often we have this technology push or a solution looking for a problem and that can lead to a great innovation if you line up a a customer need with, you know, a technology breakthrough. So that's a really interesting point. The idea of a solution looking for a problem as opposed to, as you said, Dyson solving a problem that existed in a market. Can you think of any innovations that have been broadly picked up and popularized that started with a fantastic solution that people didn't know they wanted and then all of a sudden they were convinced of it? Or does that just never happen? Does it always have to be a problem looking to be solved? There's always got to be that need or problem there. Otherwise, you know, you're just going to be push, push, push and you'll never be successful. I mean, an example from, you know, my my own life or career and, and not necessarily a big innovation that I came up with, but, you know, working for the ice cream company Streets here or Walls in the UK many years ago, the 
R&D or technology team had come up with a way of making soft serve ice cream and keeping it soft in the everyday home freezer. Oh, wow. Now, now without getting into a, you know, too much detail, but if you go to a Mr. Whippy or whatever on the, on the corner, I think the temperature there is about, I don't know, minus 10 or 12 degrees, something like that. Now, your freezer at home is about minus 18 or more. So if you put a Mr. Whippy in the freezer at home, it would turn to rock. That's hard, yeah. Yeah. So they'd worked out how to keep that soft. Now, at the same time, this is a few years ago, McFlurry was very big at McDonald's. Mm. Mm. And so we knew there was a trend there and there was a demand there for moving this idea in home. And at the same time, the research and developers had worked it out from a scientific, I guess, point. So we were able to bring those two together and, you know, it was a very successful launch and a very successful product that we sold across Europe for quite a few years. But where's it gone? I've never seen soft serve ice cream that I can buy and take home. Yeah, I'm not sure why it never made it down under. I mean, I was working up in, um, in London at the time. so It yeah. just hasn't made it. So they got it to work in my minus 18 freezer. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm surprised we haven't seen that one. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. So, Nathan, you've told us that most innovations fail because we don't do the research first. We don't find out what the customer need is. We just sometimes get hooked on this idea of something that we think is really cool and we can create. How should we go about doing this? What's the kind of process that you talk about in your book and in the work that you do? Yeah, so look, the the other thing too to, to think about is this. So the process that I want to talk about is the front end of innovation, so the front end stages of innovation. And that's everything from identifying, you know, where you want to focus your innovation efforts to then doing the research to understand, you know, what your customer needs are, then distilling those into insights, generating the ideas. So you're only about halfway through that stage, you start getting into idea generation and then running experiments to both prototype and test those ideas and then start developing early business models for those. Now, in a... I've got a few um, stats in that here for you, David. So I'm in a study of 2,000 innovation projects by um, a guy called Dr. Robert Cooper. He had identified that six of the eight successful or success factors of innovation to do with that front end of innovation. Yet, interestingly, only 7% of the dollars and 16% of the effort are spent on that front end of innovation. That's incredible. So it's like, um, you know, you imagine a sport, say AFL or, or rugby or, or netball, where you know, typically you've got two ends of the field, you know that most of your mistakes are happening at one end of the field, but you're not doing any training in that end of the field, you're not putting your best players at that end of the field or anything like that. So that's what's happening. We're skipping that front end of innovation to hurry up and start developing and launching stuff, but we end up launching the wrong things. That actually previews a question I was going to ask at some point. I was thinking that these big, massive R&D kind of firms that rely on research and developing new products all the time and just pumping them out into the market, and I'm thinking of something like Unilever. I think you've spent some time working with Unilever because they're always having to innovate their products to stay fresh with the market. I thought they would have this kind of process totally nailed, that they would not fall into those 
beginner errors of of doing the fun stuff and putting all their their effort into the fun end, but actually doing the back end in a really smart way. Is it true for large organizations that rely on new products and R and D? Do they get it right, or do they? Is there still a missing piece? It's a case of some do, and there's still a lot that don't. Hence, why the you know success factors are so low, or you know the yeah the numbers are so low in terms of how many you launch and how many succeed. So there are organisations like you know the Unilevers and the Procter and Gamble who've been doing it for years, and yes, they still have their failures, but they're they're getting better. But look, I don't know a couple of other interesting stats. So that that back end of the innovation journey. So in terms of where you're starting to develop the ideas into products and services and that. So that's where they spend thirty-seven percent of their of their resources, and remember that was seven um, percent in that first half. Of that thirty-seven percent, half of it's on unsuccessful products or projects. So you'd hope by that stage, and that's quite a horrific number, that you would have already weeded out, you know, those bad projects. But actually, yeah, one and two are still failing. They're getting to the back end. They're still spending money on the back end of a product that's not going to make it. All right, well, what are those stages of innovation? How can you help us understand the, the steps that you advise so that we're, we're putting the right focus at the right point of the innovation? Yeah, so the first step is to identify, you know, where do we want to um, place our bets? So where do we want to innovate? You know, what are the trends telling us? What are the growth areas? But then even once we've done that, we really need to understand what the customer needs and pain points are. And that involves, you know, getting out and spending time with your customers. From there, we then want to distill those, and we can go into these in more detail, distill what the key needs and insights are. And off those, we use those as inspiration and and focus points for our idea generation. And then we still want to then take it back to the customer and test it with them and get feedback before we build our business case and go into that more expensive back end of innovation. So, yeah, so jumping into that that discovery stage, that, that research for understanding our customer needs and insights. You know, some of the things we can do there is we can go and be the customer. So go and experience this experience as they do. We can observe them and interview them. You know, customers will tell you certain things, but you observe them and you may see other things. And then you can also learn about them by talking to people around them. You know, we're doing a project um, launching a new hair product for guys. So we us to talk to their partners because they're more likely to tell us about their grooming habits than the guys would. You know, and we went along with them to, you know, the hairstylists and things like that and got a lot of insights from, you know, from the experts who are working in that field every day. So we can do those sorts of things to really uncover the customer needs. You know, you remind me of a quote that, that apparently Henry Ford didn't ever say, but it's attributed to him a lot. And that is, if you ask the people what they wanted, they would have told you a faster horse. So it was almost as if he was saying, I'm I'm in this place where I've got the imagination, I've got the creativity and the vision. I'm not going to give them what they want because they don't really know what they want yet. I can imagine something that they want much better than that. Now, I know that the development of the automobile was a very special invention, a, a real win for innovation. But is there any truth to that? in all innovative products? You know, asking customers, you, you place a lot of emphasis on that, but do they always really know what they want? Or are we targeting just here incremental improvements in products, not these great big leaps forward like Henry Ford did from horse to car? Yes, I think there's there's some truth in it, but there's also some misunderstanding. So, you know, you you don't always or you can't always ask the customer 
what they want because they aren't always experts in the solution or the technology. Mm. But you can ask them about what are you struggling with? What hacks you off? What do you really desire? And then from that, you can work it out. So you could argue if Henry Ford didn't talk to customers about what their needs and pain points were, and you wouldn't necessarily use those words, they might say, well, you know, I want to get from Brisbane to Sydney faster. Yeah, but they wouldn't necessarily know they could do that with a car. Mm. Yeah, well, that's a good approach by asking them not exactly, not necessarily what product do you want, but what are your pain points? What are you hurting? And then that's where you apply your expertise and your knowledge, your creativity to imagine the solutions. Look, I get that's that's great. And, and I like the fact that we bounced around that Henry Ford idea. It gave us that understanding. So you've told us about the front end and what's important there to identify where we want to put our resources to spend time with the customer to steal those ideas. What's the back end, the the end where organizations mistakenly spend most of their resources? So from there you've you know you want to have an idea that you've tested and validated for desirability. And at least um, at a concept level you've stress tested it for feasibility and viability. And that gives you permission to go and build a business case. Too often as organizations, you know, we're spending many months and, you know, many hundreds of thousands of dollars or in government, you know, millions of dollars building a business case, but we haven't done those steps first. So that then gives us, once we've got a business case and it's signed off, we can then go and start building it. So whether that's a product or whether that's a service or whether it's an internal process or system, we can then go and start building that. And throughout that journey, you know, we're building it, but we're also refining it and getting it ready for launch. Now, you must have some fantastic stories of errors that large organizations have spent big money down the drain. Give us one of those. You don't need to necessarily name the organization, but tell us about a time where a an organization has missed a step so badly and it's cost them big time. Look, there's yeah, there, there's probably a few and there's a few that I can think of that I've been involved with, which are a little bit funny. I know of, you know, in the UK that this team ran some focus groups it was an alcoholic beverage company, and out of the focus groups came this idea of a non-alcoholic shot, because when they were doing the research, which is you know sort of more like the next day, and you know the next day shots never feel good, do they? And so this idea of a non-alcoholic shot came up. Great idea at nine on nine a.m. on a Monday. Exactly, it's all about being in control and things like that. And so when that launched, it was one of the biggest failures in the alcohol market at the time because. Unfortunately, when you do do shots, it's not about being in control. So a classic case of um, you know interviewing people and not interviewing people in situ and definitely not observing behavior. That is a classic case. What a terrible mistake. All right. Now, is there anything else we need to know about that back end? We've started, we've got permission to build the business case. We've started building the product and putting it together. What are the other really important phases? So the other important phase is, is getting ready for launch. So you're both getting your, your product ready for launch, but also your whole marketing mix. So when, you, when you, you, know, you are launching, you've got that awareness out there in the market and you're going to get those early sales, which are really important to then you know, driving through extra sales to the rest of the market and being successful. Hey, when you see products like you know, the, 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 you know, the cliche example is, say, the iPhone, what Steve Jobs and Apple did with the iPhone, and then you see all of the other companies copy it essentially and 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 some would even say in in the you know the five six seventh generation surpassing the iphone in terms of features and they get that competitive rivalry but we all know and we all remember who was the real 
pioneer. We know who's copying. And we're seeing the same kind of thing emerge with Elon Musk and Tesla. You know, Tesla is almost positioning itself as is the first company that is Apple-like in my eyes since Apple started doing its thing with the iPod and and then the iPhone. And of course, lots of automobile companies are now bringing out their own electric vehicles and they're probably copying to a certain extent, trying to compete. As an innovator, is there a special place in your heart always for the, the Apple iPhone that was the leader in the industry, for the Tesla that is the leader in the industry, but will probably, you know, competing with a, a huge range of, of different companies p- producing cars over the next few years. Is, like I say, is there a special place in your heart for those kind of products? Oh, there is. And you always admire what they're doing. And, and what you see with those, those innovators, whether that's, you know, you see the individual or the organization behind it, is they really challenge the status quo. You know, if you if you look at the at the iPhone, if you go back to you know the original Apple Mac, it, you know I think it challenged. Who said computers had to be beige and ugly, or you know whatever they used to be? And you look at Tesla, like you say, it ch- really challenges the status quo. And I think that's how they break through, and and that's how they they become number one. And you can imagine, you know, that that conversation we had earlier. Steve Jobs, like Henry Ford, wouldn't have gone to people and said, so, you know, tell me about what this iPhone might look like or tell me about what the iPod might look like. But he might have gone to people and said, all right, what, when it comes to music and communicating with friends, what are your pain points? What do you want fixed? And they might have told you, I hate carrying around 50 CDs or I hate the fact that I've got to keep listening to the same CD on my Sony Walkman because of, I can only carry one at a time. Or I hate the fact that my phone is so big and... Uh, and then I've got to go to my computer and use the internet. And he would have pieced together all those little hints that his customer was giving him. They wouldn't necessarily have described for him in the research process the iPhone, but they would certainly have been able to talk about their pain points. Definitely. And they, and they really had to think big there. So they had to think beyond just a product. You know, they had to think about a whole, a whole system, you know, and a whole network to make that work. So, you, you know, you had, you had the iPhone and you had, you know, what was at the time called iTunes. And bringing that all together as a bundle worked really well. And we see that with innovations. When you innovate in more than one type of innovation, you know, you do really well as an organization. Give me another example, because the Apple example is so clear to me, the way everything integrates, software, hardware, the different products. It's an immaculate sort of you know, in- integration. I can't think of a better word. What other spaces have you seen multiple products or services be innovated in the same space that are, that are hooked up in that same way? Well, even if we carry on with Apple for a little bit, I mean, we forget that they used to just be a manufacturer and they weren't a retailer. Now, the story goes, before they went into retail, they sent a team to go and live in the Ritz-Carlton. And the reason they did that is because they believed the Ritz you know, delivered the best customer experience of anyone in the world. So this team went in there and watched how they did great customer experience. And what they observed is, you know, say you were staying at the Ritz and you went down to the front desk to complain because, you know, you didn't have hot water in your shower or something like that. What would happen at the Ritz at the counter, they would, whilst they were fixing the problem in terms of the hot water, they're also repairing the relationship. So when you go into an Apple store and you go to the Genius Bar, it's the same thing. So they're working on your Mac or your, you know, your Apple device and they're repairing the relationship. And you can also see, you know, how they innovate across their whole, you know, customer experience and in-store experience as well. So they've, they've kept innovating, you know, right across the value chain and not just, you know, products and even not just the system. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I've never thought about it that way, but they, they are as innovative with the way they serve you in their store as they are with 
the products that they sell. It all aligns beautifully. All right, now you've wriggled out of my question. That's a that's an obvious <laughs> example that, that that I can see, but I'm sure you've got other examples of organisations that have connected products and services in that way. Well, I think another great one is Nestle. You know, always in supermarkets, and then you know they developed the Nespresso, so they've now got you know a delivery machine for coffee. So they've got an espresso machine, and their pods, which locked people in for quite a while while they had a patent on that. But now they're also, you know, or for a long time, they're in retail as well through the espresso stores. But they've also, they haven't just relied on locking you in through the patent. They've created a club. So you can join the club and you can get your, you know, your pod sent out to you and, and all these things as well. So they've once again created that full experience through a number of elements of the value chain. Oh, that's a great example. Righto, Nathan. Now we're going to make you earn your, your huge appearance fee on the podcast by leaving us with your top three to five tips. So we've got listeners, they've bought into your message. They they understand intuitively how important it is to put the effort in at the front end of the innovation process. They've bought into the idea that, yeah, in order to survive in this industry, I need to be an innovative leader. What kind of tips can you give us for that to become a real part of our day-to-day? So one of the biggest challenges I see these days is people trying to do too much and leaders trying to do too much. So, you know, choose a a hit list, a short hit list of where you want your teams to focus. So what are your innovation priorities? Then find a way to free up some time for people to innovate. People always say, I don't have time to innovate, which um, as you'd know, it's it's all about priorities. So you've got to prioritize that innovation effort. And then create space for them, not only in terms of time, but a physical or these days a, a virtual space. So when we go into the office again and we're sitting at our desk, it's where we get work done, but it's not where we're at our most creative. So where can they go in the organisation or within the, the ecosystem of the organisation to have ideas and to collaborate, but also to bring those ideas to life quickly and cheaply so they can take them back to the customer and test them with those. And then the other thing, and it's central to the, the start of the innovation process and also that testing phase, is always bringing in customers. You know, setting up programs, what Unilever does is they have a consumer immersion program. So every every quarter you're going out and spending time with your consumers or your customers. So a, so be that. A constant conversation with customers. Yeah. You could be shopping with them. You could be cooking with them, cleaning with them. You know, if you're in the airline industry, you know, you, you might be cleaning the aisles. You know, you might be on baggage handling, trying out the whole experience. So you're really attuned to what your customers' needs and also pain points are. Great advice, Nathan. Look, mate, I can't thank you enough for giving me a second chance and coming back on the Team Guru podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much, David. And that was Nathan Baird. It's fascinating to hear those stats on the failure rates of innovative projects and the fact that so many organizations spend money at the wrong end of the process. I loved Nathan's tips for leaders who want to create opportunities for their staff to successfully innovate. Number one, choose a short hit list. Be clear about your priority projects. Number two, find a way to free up time to innovate. Number three, create a physical or virtual space that's dedicated to the innovation process, a place for ideas and collaboration. And number four, always bring in customers. 
it's got to be a constant conversation. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Nathan on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Thank you.